This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. We are encountering an intrusion of the micro world as COVID swamps country after country, including my own. The majority of species and life's living masses are tiny beyond our perception, like a parallel universe. That's where COVID comes from. Let's explore those realms with a world expert microbiologist, an American scientist working out of Basel, Switzerland. Species and populations of visible plants and animals are in decline globally, as you know. Is the microbial world in trouble as well? We can't live without it. Be ready to challenge your mind. This is Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Is global microbial biodiversity increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? With the recent outbreak of an invisible killer virus, we may need to know. But this expert's answer may surprise you. Dr. David Toller works at the Department of Biocentrum, and that's the Center for Molecular Life Sciences at the University of Basel in Switzerland. He's also part of the Program for Human Environment at the Rockefeller University in New York. And from Basel, David Toller, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hello, thank you. I'm very happy to be speaking with you. It's great to have you. Well, we might as well dive right in. There's no easy way for this. Nine months before the COVID-19 pandemic began, you led a paper on precision public health to inhibit the contagion of disease. What kind of public health were you talking about there? Precision medicine has usually been associated with the idea of sequencing each person's genome, let's say, and targeting medicines to just the person. So thinking of precision medicine in the context of public health was somewhat different. And I think that biological revolutions often happen when things that were considered uniform are allowed, you're allowed to explore the heterogeneity. So it's not the same everywhere. So biochemistry may have started by putting the rat in the blender and, uh, you know, became more advanced, let's say, when you look for which enzymes are specific to the liver or the kidney, something like that. And, and the same thing for the brain. You might have originally ground it up and, and looked for the whole, but when you map the different kinds of neurons or neurotransmitters or chemicals. So I was interested in doing this kind of, exploring this kind of heterogeneity uh, in, in the microbial-human interaction. In terms of public health, we often think of the spread of disease, but the spread of, of health is also a possibility. The idea that there may be contagious health was on my mind at the time. So I was interested in, in uh, say, where are microbes dispersed in the air? What, what is the three-dimensional, four-dimensional structure of, of life in, in, around us? In the same kind of way that it's a enlightenment to many people to realize, let's say, oh, I don't know, like, there, there are these great stories from Einstein. When he was five years old, he had a cold and somebody gave him a compass when he was sitting in bed. And he realized that the world is filled with invisible force fields in that case, magnetism and electricity, and that occupied him for the, the rest of his life. And, and I think that 
that kind of um, invisible life around us is is an equally well, it's equally true and uh, equally invisible to the naked eye. So I, I was trying to explore how to measure it and where heterogeneity might come in. I haven't thought about this paper in some time, so you've no doubt read it more recently than I have. I have. Okay. So supposing we could shrink ourselves down and and suddenly appear on this microscopic plane, just to bring this alive for listeners, what sort of creatures might we find there? Well, I mean, the heterogeneity of the microbial world is in many ways greater than that of the macroscopic world, certainly on the level of the kind of chemical transformations and um, the level of informational diversity. So the difference between the DNA sequences or DNA and RNA sequences of many bacteria and viruses are much different from each other than the DNA or RNA sequences of a, I don't know, a penguin and a zebra and an oak tree and a turnip or something. So a tremendous uh, variation there. And, and some, in some cases, tremendous morphological variation. So you see creatures that are much more different than the Macroscopic creatures, but but the smaller you go, and then into the informational realm, the more the differences would become manifest. And yet, and yet, there's um, a certain unity. So when I say you have sequences that are as different as the most distantly related animals and plants, let's say, among the microbes, are much more distant. They're in the same creatures there might be other sequences that are very, very similar, that are as similar as yours to your children, that is directly inherited. And uh, in those cases, in fact, there's pretty good evidence for uh, gene transfer between these, you know, creatures that have, part of them is like wildly divergent and different, and part of them is shared. So one of my uh, dear colleagues, Josh, uh, Letterberg, who um, was a real pioneer in, in genetics of, of these creatures, talked about uh, a worldwide web of, of genetic information. And, and that's reasonably valid. You know, you keep your own identity, but also share information uh, across very wide areas. So I'm giving more of my kind of abstract vision of it rather than I'm not sure, you know, what, what I think you would see if you shrank in any one place would be a very small part of it. And, and that's what I mean that I'm trying in, in this case to see the global heterogeneity more of, I mean, I want to, a little bit like the Google map when you can, you know, go, you can go to great detail of, of, street view or something of one place, but can also zoom out and, and see the relationship of, of these levels is very important. Maybe we could get a grasp with an example from another paper that you co-authored on Microscopic Life, just published in March 2021, pretty recent. And it turns out that a virus not only infects animals, but also invades bacteria found in our intestines. Maybe you could explain what a bacteriophage is and why you helped create a public collection of them in Basel. 
Well, first I want to, I'm not sure if you misspoke, but I've learned that it's sometimes very important not only to say what you mean, but to try to say it in a way that cannot be misunderstood. So as far as I know, there is no virus that can infect both animals and, and bacteria. But viruses of bacteria are called bacteriophage or, or phage. So yes, I study bacteriophage. They're, these are viruses that infect bacteria. In fact, every living form pretty much has viruses that infect it. And the viruses that infect the different forms of life oddly enough, seem more related to that form of life than they do to viruses that infect other forms of life. So it's almost like the viruses are coming in and out of each kind of life form rather than they're not evolving in their own tree of life across the uh, kingdoms. You know, let me say that what we did was study viruses that come largely from the sewers of our city, some rivers and compost piles and so on. And the, the part of the microbial evolution that's happening in, in many cases so rapidly happens in niches that didn't even exist before people made cities, let's say. There were no sewers of course, before we made them in cities. And, and so they're, they're this kind of unique ecological environment. And it's of interest to see what kind of evolution goes on in there. But you, you and the other authors say that traditional model systems did not keep pace with the recent massive expansion of the field. David, why can't we keep up with even a limited class of virus life? I'm not sure whether we can or not. Let me put it this way. And this comes to the title of the paper you introduced in the beginning. And, and let me say how I came to that paper. Some of my dear colleagues, and I, I've been a little bit involved also in the study of uh, species and, and animals, and especially animals more than plants, and, and how you uh, name species and characterize them. And people who really study that, have found that a lot of uh, plants and animals are endangered. So the, the defaunation, their populations are going down, or many species of animals and plants are going extinct. So I'm around these people and learning from them, Jesse Ausubel in particular, who I've known for, I don't know, 30 years, but we, we had never really collaborated. But over the last year or two, I, we've become a lot closer, and... And so they're asking these questions. How is biodiversity decreasing? Meanwhile, I'm a microbiologist looking at uh, microbes in the sewers or other places, and we're all being assaulted by SARS, which we don't know exactly came from bats or penguins or something. And is it exactly the same or has it newly evolved? And so I'm driven to the same question, asking them the same question that they're asking about the macrobes, which is, is global microbial diversity increasing or decreasing? And then I reach another stage where, again, a, this, a dear friend of mine, Josh, used to say, he's, he, he passed maybe 10 years ago, but we used to, when we would discuss 
questions, he would say to me, I'm not sure, David, we can't answer, we may not be, I'm not saying we can answer this question today, but we ought to be able to answer the question of, is this a case of our personal ignorance, or is it a case of the ignorance of the entire field? And so, armed with this question or asking this question of, is global microbial biodiversity increasing or decreasing, or staying the same for that matter, I started asking around and looking, and nobody knows, and nobody even asked the question. So that now brings me to the question you're asking, how can we, can we keep up or can we not keep up? And the answer is, I don't know, and nobody knows. So some microbes, certainly smallpox, polio, some, you know, we know certain cases where viruses are extinct or near extinct that we used to know pretty much as pathogens, but there are probably many that are coming into existence and going out of existence that we've never seen. And of course, most of the attention has been focused on, on pathogens, which is a whole other kind of issue. And, of course, there will be areas where, where it's doing one or the other. But globally, I mean, for animals and plants, there's a lot of debate about some ecosystems are in more trouble than others, some species are in more trouble than others. Is the rate of extinction equal to that of uh, mass extinctions of the past or not? You know, so these kind of debates go on. But there's no question that the overall number of species going down and that, you know, we'd have to be around for, if we were, you know, lived 100,000 years, we'd say we have a good chance of seeing the evolution of a new bird or a new fish or something, but it doesn't happen very often. But microbes grow, many of them have generation times that are so much shorter than, than animals or plants, and many of them have numbers that are so much bigger that it's very difficult to imagine an exercise. So you might say where you can, you know, and, and many of them are in inaccessible places. The estimate is that most microbial diversity is probably in the deep, hot biosphere, 10 kilometers under the earth, and that there may be more biomass than there is on top that we know of, of microbes down there. That's a, a whole other discussion that I would very much encourage you to get into. Not with me. I'm not by any means the best person for it. I, I don't know any of this stuff. For, I haven't done this, this work, but I know of it. But at any rate, so, so there are two things. One is if you say we're going to make a program like stamp collectors of counting everything, and then we'll come back in 10 years and count them again and see if, if there are fewer or more different kinds, that may be way too slow for what's going on, and the numbers may be really high. And that was where I was getting into, uh, you know, so in global biodiversity of plants and animals, you already have the idea that there are many more species than those that have been named. But you have enough of a context of looking at things and enough of an understanding of, of the conditions that they're facing to realize that the trajectory is downward. That when you do this exercise in a reasonable sample, you see fewer things fewer different life forms, and the ones that you see, there are fewer of them. So the, the genetic diversity of plants and animals is going down on two levels, population and species. But in microbes, it's still, it's such a, in viruses, it's still 
at such a level that when you take a handful of mud, you find so much you've never seen before. You take another handful of mud and say there's so much you've never seen before, you know, or a liter of seawater and so on. So it keeps going on, and, and you don't know if that's because the number is very big or because, it, which it is, there's no question it's very big, but also is it changing even as you're measuring it by any any way that we have the rate to. And, and that brings me to the, the figure in my paper where I try to compare this problem to the problem that gave rise to um, the calculus, the classical calculus, because, you know, the, the, in, the, in that paper, and say, well, the, the way that you got to the calculus was you measure two points on a line and draw or two points on a curve and draw a line that connects them and then measure the slope of that line. And that's called the secant, and that's, you know, the slope of biodiversity you measured a year ago and measure it now, and the slope is downward. There's some debate about how much the slope is downward in which cases, but certainly worse in the ocean than on land and so on. In some ecosystems and phylogenies worse than others, but it's down. It's pretty consistently down. But with microbes, we have no idea. Globally, we have no idea. And so I'm trying to think the derivative, what gave rise to the calculus, was this idea that you could measure the slope of a line at a single point. Now, from some point of view, that makes no sense at all. It's by definition impossible. But <laughs> nonetheless, the calculus exists, and, and people got uh, beyond that mental block. And a lot of insight came from it. So I'm trying to wave my arms around and say, what would be the equivalent of the calculus for the determination of microbial biodiversity? Can we, is there a way to directly determine the trajectory? Well, this makes me wonder, is this a problem that we will have solved, perhaps with the help of artificial intelligence 100 years from now? We'll have pretty good maps of what's going on there. Or is it a bit like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle where there are things in physics and perhaps in microbiology that it is impossible for us to understand or map out? There's an actual boundary of knowledge there. What are your thoughts? Well, one doesn't know without trying. So one um, great scientist I know, Al Hershey, one of the phrases he used was um, – a theory or a hypothesis, an idea, a model, is exactly as good as the next experiment it inspires. So what is different about this paper, of course, compared to other papers, is most papers tell you some, some kind of new fact about nature, let's say. It's a scientific paper. Something you didn't know before. Or maybe in climate change, you say we have some model that predicts the CO2 concentration or its consequence on temperature that seems to be a tenth of a degree better than the other one or, so you know, matches the slope better or something like that. But this isn't that kind of paper. This isn't that kind of stage of the work. This is kind of formulating a question. And it's formulating a question that, as far as I can tell, hasn't been asked. And then the next question is, you know, what can you do with it? Is it a good question? Is it a useful question? You know, where can you go with it? So when you say, would you predict that this question will immediately run into 
some kind of wall that, that, you know, you'll just say, well, we're forbidden from going any further with it, so it's not really very useful. I'd say, well, that's, you know, from my point of view, premature, because I can think of things that one might do inspired by the question. And there's a, 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 another guy, I didn't know him personally, Robbie. Um, he, he was um, actually discoverer of um, NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, so the effect of magnetic fields on the nucleus of atoms, a great physicist. And he said that um, other people, he grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and he said other kids, when they came home from school in Brooklyn, their mother would ask them, what did you learn in school today? And my mother would ask me, did you ask any good questions today? And that's why I became a scientist. So I'm proposing that this is a good question. <laughs> that's all I'm proposing. And, and so I feel a resistance when you say, well, will it become a useless question soon enough? Or will it become a completely solved question soon enough? And then I think of, um, you know, Carlos Castaneda, you know, the, the Yaki way of knowledge and all the wonderful books, you know, when he talks about a path with heart. So is this question a path with heart, you know? Does this question lead you to interesting things? And, and for me, it, it is so far. I mean, it's not a, a very old question, in, you know, for me and apparently for the field in general, you know, for humanity. But I connect to it in this way. For instance, I was reading from the Guardian newspaper. They cover a lot of good biodiversity issues, and they had a, a biodiversity kind of background article I happened to read this morning. And, and it, it says biodiversity is going down. It's terribly threatened. And then it says biodiversity includes microbial diversity, which is vast and, pro and vaster in many ways than all of plants and animals. So then I realized, since we don't know which way microbial biodiversity is going, we really don't know which way all of biodiversity is going, since it's the majority, and we're used to thinking of everything going down. So then a place where it leads me is you're like, so what? what why should I care which way it goes? Or which way? And, and there are two kind of different things. One is... Some microbiologists I've talked to, microbial ecologists, people who, are pro, who, who realize it's a good question, say to me, well, my intuition, and we only have speculation and intuition at this point. So a couple of people, their speculation and intuition, I won't name them just from the point of view of not putting words into someone's mouth, but, but is that it's going down. Why is it going down? Because a lot of microbes are specifically associated with specific plants and animals. So trees, for instance, get a lot of their nutrition because of special kinds of uh, fungi that are associated with their roots and have a lot to do with bringing nutrients into the trees. And uh, we have a microbiome in our gut that has a lot to do with conditioning our immune system and, is, you know, and setting general health and development and maybe has some aspects of nutrition to it also. So if the species, if macro species go extinct, then the microbes associated with them will go down the tubes too. On the other hand, on the other hand, you know the beautiful last paragraph of Darwin's Origin of Species, 
where he talks about the tangled bank of all the interacting creatures and how the complexity of their interaction uh, and network is what gives the diversity of life. So it's really a statement about the evolution of diversity. And a great deal of microbial interaction has nothing to do with the, you know, they, they might be primarily reacting or interacting with each other, including their phage. So I don't know the proportion. It brings up this other question. What proportion of microbes are interacting with macrobes, with plants and animals, and what we usually see with our naked eye? And what proportion are independent of us? And I don't know. There's so many important questions there. I mean, if, for example, the bacteria in our gut uh, suffer a biodiversity crisis, then we won't be able to digest food and we'll go. So there's that sort of aspect. But then with the onslaught of the pandemic virus, we also have a slight fear that, well, what is, as we're going down, they're coming up. And could the microbial world, in fact, even overrun us somehow and, and, and become the new dominant life form? Well, I'll make two remarks. One is that the pace of evolution in the microbial world or the pace of opportunity for evolution is, I'll make three remarks, is very rapid, potentially. Many of them, many of their uh, life uh, generation times are very fast compared to plants, animals, and us. So some, you know, replicate every 10 minutes or half hour or something, and we take whatever, 20 years. So that's one kind of thing. So they generate a lot of variants. So that would be if they wanted us dead, we would be toast. So the major, it's clear that the major motivation of the microbial world is not to go, not to, to kill us. And some things happen I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that the major trend might be much more in, the, in a friendly or symbiotic direction and that, um, you know, there's a certain amount of focus. So every medical school, every school of public health and so on has a department of infectious disease, but uh, there, there are no departments of symbiosis. And, and so there's a certain focus gap. Another issue that I'll bring up another point, is that I think that one of the common philosophical models of evolution, which I first became familiar with, I think, from Teilhard de Chardin, a um, Catholic theologian around, I don't know, 1900 or so, and, and that many other people, Kurt, Kurtzwell, say, when he has the Omega point, there are many people have this idea that evolution is kind of hierarchical. So... For the first three billion years, we had microbial evolution, bacteria, archaea, viruses. Then we got the eukaryotic cell with its nucleus and so on, and the, then multi, eukaryotic multicellular differentiated organisms, the kind of animals and plants we are comfortable seeing, you know, macroscopically. And then maybe some we aren't comfortable with, sharks, dinosaurs, that kind of thing. But anyway, big thing. Then came, you know, guess what, right? Humans with language and culture. And so the cutting edge of evolution 
is now going either to humans in human society or maybe to computers, like 2001, that kind of how thing. And um, I think that kind of view is touchingly naive. So what I mean is, of course, there's no motivation for microbes to stop evolving because they're eukaryotic cells or, you know, I, I don't think that they hit a wall either. And I, I think that many people assume that the microbes around today are living fossils from what microbes were a billion years ago. And that to me seems unlikely. I mean, from a couple of points of view, one is that of course we're around, that's the MDO side, so they have new niches to adapt to. But the other is that they themselves keep evolving. And whether they, I'm not saying they evolved to some omega point, like Teilhard de Chardin or Kurzweil called it, I forget, the, you know, the, the singularity. I, I, I'm not saying, I, I don't know what, that they have some overall teleology that they're going to, but they're certainly creating, very creative in the sense of at least the Red Queen and Alice in Wonderland, where you have to keep running as fast as you can in order to stay in the same place. But that, in fact, can be a very creative activity when you have a, a genetic kind of interaction between creatures. So one of them might learn how to be symbiotic or learn how to exploit another or to attack it, and they, in turn, have to evolve some defense or some other reaction to the symbiosis. So the interaction among many creatures is, is not a... I don't think it finishes... I don't, I don't think it's a game. It's not like chess where you play a game and you have a winner and a loser. It's a game that keeps going. And then the third or fourth thing that I'll say in relation to is I have this image of information space in life, which may be a lot bigger than, but for this conversation, I'll limit it to the space of all DNA and RNA sequences that are alive not all possible random. I'm not playing Borges' Library of Babel. I'm saying that, that um, you know, that those filtered, those associations to those that are alive. So all the strings of, of sequences that are alive. So, you know, life isn't a continuous mush. Life is lumpy. You know, we have these things called species, right, where humans are more like humans than they are like oak trees or chimpanzees or, you know. If, if you put every living thing on Earth or in the biosphere and put them in an array, you would get clumps that are more or less similar to each other, and then you'd have a space with nothing and another clump of, of different species. And to me, that's kind of like the image that we have of the universe, so individuals in this image are stars and species are like galaxies, and there's a lot of empty space between the galaxies. Now, whether or not that empty space in principle could be filled with life, but just doesn't happen to be for reasons we should think about, I'm not certain, but I think a lot of it is could be amenable to life. It doesn't happen to exist in the same way that a lot of intergalactic space could, in principle, have a star in it, but it doesn't. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
okay, we now know we live in an expanding universe. That means that the volume of the universe is getting bigger, and the volume of the Earth isn't getting any bigger. So the proportion of the universe that's filled by the Earth, which was already pretty small, <laughs> is getting smaller all the time, which may bother you or not, I don't know, but that, that seems to be what the cosmologists tell us. So the universe is getting bigger in volume. At the same time, I think we're losing parts of the universe in a certain sense because it's falling down black holes, which are all over the place. I don't know exactly where they go, what they're connected to, but in that sense, the universe that we inhabit is getting a little thinner, (laughs) a little more sparse. So now let me take this into the realm of information space. So my sense is mine personal intuition at this point, is that information space, counting the microbiological world, is continuing to expand. But at the same time, the information space of eukaryotic multicellular differentiated organisms, which includes us and all the plants and animals, is staying the same or shrinking, probably shrinking quite a bit when you include all of plants and animals going extinct and who's being defaunated by the abuse, by, by the way the human civilization is treating a lot of the ecosystems. So I don't know if climate warming is the number one, you know, there's a debate whether climate change is, is the number one cause of defaunation and species extinction because the spreading urbanization, paving it over, even um, destroying a lot of the ocean with pouring concrete for windmills everywhere, you know, this kind of thing, is probably doing at least as much damage to the uh, biodiversity as the actual raise in temperature. These are interesting issues to get into because one of the things is that renewable energy is not necessarily green from point of view of keeping, you know, as many species alive as possible and so on. That's another whole interesting debate. And uh, I I think that there's, I'm leaning in that debate toward Amory Lovins, that there's a lot more, it it shouldn't be a debate between nuclear windmills and and so on, but more that you you can use the energy much more efficiently rather than making more of it. But that's another discussion. But at any rate, my vision for the biodiversity is that we're at, we, <laughs> to the extent we identify with plants, animals, and our species, are an ever-shrinking portion of an ever-expanding universe of biodiversity, is what I think. But I do not know that. My, my intuition. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. David Thaler from the University of Basel, and we're talking about the mysterious worlds of microscopic life where what you don't know can help you or it could kill you. And I think this is in a for me, a bit surprising, and perhaps for the public aspect of your work, David, is that 
while many people may shrink in horror and fear about the microscopic world, we don't know it. We're afraid of it. There's a lot of dark stories about it. As you say, at universities or medical schools, we focus on the disease aspects. But you say no. Uh, well, one paper in February 2019, you say minimizing microbial human interactions would be a mistake and that we could actually work in a positive way, even a revolutionary way to develop with microbial life. Would you talk to us about that? Yeah, there's no question that we're doing that, that we evolved in, in concert with microbial life. And um, creatures, there's a, a large literature of, uh, it's called azenic biology. So um, with mice, they're uh, raised by cesarean in a germ-free environment. So the, the mice have no intestinal, microflora, no oral, nothing. They're germ-free. They're only, the only cells in them are mouse cells. In our case, if you took our body, it's got a, at least as many bacterial cells in it as, as eukaryotic cells that we call us. So we, are not, we as individuals are not, you know, include our microbiome. But these azenic mice are quite ill. Their intestines don't develop normally. And um, the lethal dose of Salmonella typhimurium, a common disease model in mice, um, of a normal mouse with a normal intestinal microflora is about a million of Salmonella typhimurium. But for the germ-free mouse, the lethal dose is one. You know, this is classic work of, of Rene Dubois. So that's one example for just the development and the immune system and possibly the microflora are uh, occupying space. Some of them, uh, you know, microbes are sometimes protecting their niche from other microbes. So, yeah, some microbes protect us from disease of other microbes. And uh, one of the uh, issues with the SARS-CoV-2 virus is that it's enough different from other microbes that uh, nobody seems to have, or very few people seem to have pre-existing immunity to it. And all of the vaccines, the way that they work, is presenting some epitopes, some features of the virus um, to the immune system uh, in the same way that other related viruses might, right? So... You know, that, that this virus is, from point of view of our body recognizing it, an evolutionary outlier, at least in what we've been exposed to, is one reason that it's, it's causing such problems. During the pandemic in, in July 2020, the journal Nature published your call to collect samples of the COVID-19 virus for future scientific study. And now we have more than a dozen named variants of concern, and I don't think we've even touched the bottom of that one. Is that collection being made, and why do we need it? Well, you know, again, it's this issue that in this case, I mean, in this case, I mean, the scientific world's attention is focused on one problem in a way that I don't think it ever has been uh, in such a way. But I think that what's happening is that people are in such an emergency mode that they want to immediately sequence and characterize each isolate. But even though there's a lot of capacity to do that, 
I think that the speed of evolution of the virus, because there's so many of them, right? It, my, my estimate is that it's evolving about a trillion times faster than, than people at this point. And I think that the technology to characterize it will improve over 10 years. So, you know, what hit us and to try to understand what's going on now a lot of times historians, and this includes historians of infectious disease or historians in a way of, of anything, they want archives. They want, you know, the, the, um, to know what happened, primary material from a certain era in order to know what happened. I mean, what will you learn when you look back at it? I, I'm thinking that that the amount of effort right now, you know, it's hard in an emergency. You say, we can't do this. We can't, you know, we have to focus our resources on the things that are immediately needed and immediately helpful. I'm saying that I think, I hope, like all of us, that the immediate emergency will pass, but then we'll have a lot of capacity and the technology will improve to analyze more of them. And that, as you say, there, there are probably many variants that are going on and why it is that some places are all of a sudden having a wave and, you know, other places not and who's responding to the vaccine and where did it come from to get to a new place and who is the first infected on a, I don't know, a cruise ship or a spaceship or a submarine, whatever you want, you know. And I think that this technology of keeping samples and then being able to explore them later will, will be generalizable beyond this SARS-CoV-2 also, that we'll be glad we have all these samples and we can understand a lot of, of things. So I'm trying to prepare for... I mean, now, for instance, one of the technologies is that there's a lot of focused attention on looking for this one virus, SARS-CoV-2. We have it. We all know the name of it now. And we have very specific molecular ways to look at it, even though all of the variants are not characterized because it's just so much work and there's a limited capacity, even with so much of the world focused on it. But a lot of the, the ways of investigating it right now, in a certain sense, depend on knowing the answer in order to ask the question. You need to know a fair amount of the nucleotide sequence in order to assay if you have SARS-CoV-2, these PCR tests, RT-PCR tests. They're using primer. They're using nucleotide sequences 20 or so long that go with that virus, two of them aimed into each other. Then you can amplify it and get a signal. But... I think that, the, that what's going to really improve over the next 10 years is untargeted sequencing to go along. So you'll be able to see much more of the invisible world that's present in your saliva or in an environmental sample than you can right now, much more conveniently, and, and get a sense of the breadth and depth of the microbial world that right now I can only wave my arms at, anyone can, and, and, you know, we have a sense that it's there and there's a lot there, but, and, and also a little bit this question of how is it changing, what is, what is the rate of change, so you want, so 
So I'm, I, as I said, I'd like to in, invent, uh, you know, or I hope somebody else does, whatever, the equivalent of the calculus for microbial diversity, where you can immediately see the direction of change. But to the extent you can't do that, having historical sets of samples is great also. And also if big groups appear or disappear, you're never going to be able to tell from one sample at one time. I mean, if something was there a year ago and now it's gone, you can't tell from a sample you have now only. But you're kind of presuming the good of human knowledge and, and human nature because microbiology can have a dark side. There are questions uh, even in intelligence levels about whether this virus escaped from experiments in a lab or whether it escaped from a wild animal. And then if we keep samples, I mean, it's a bit like keeping bits of smallpox around. There's always the fear that, well, maybe somebody will bring it out in their emergency to use as a weapon against their perceived enemies. So the whole investigation further, there's a part of me says maybe we shouldn't know too much about the micro world in our present state of awareness as humans. I mean, I think that killing people is a solved problem. I suppose, you you know, people can break their heads about thinking new ways of new ways to do it. But it seems to me that it's a wonder we last as long as we do. I um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Would you learn something that then somebody could then use to destroy, I guess, I mean, the viruses, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I mean, its survival on surfaces has been well studied. It doesn't live as a virus. So you could, so you preserve the uh, sequence information, but not um, the infectivity. And from that point of view, for smallpox virus or something else, at this point, when there was this debate about whether to keep live samples or not, the... Um, facility of, of synthesizing DNA was somewhat less than it is now. And I assume that will uh, increase technically in, in the future. So when you have this sequence information, if you wanted to, you could remake it. You know, like I said, I, I think that for making science fiction horror stories, um, I used to have a whole collection of biowar pornography. You know, I would pick up these books about that, but I just gave them away. I actually, you know, gave them away to some street seller on them. I, I think that uh, the two things I said before apply, which is the, the great majority of microbial evolution clearly is not toward pathogenesis, is not toward causing disease, although the majority of human attention to microbes has been that way. And what I kind of hope is that by understanding the microbial world, you can, um, you know, in the same way that there's this concept in psychology called nudge, where you give somebody a little hint or a little foot, you know, like you might say, I don't know what, somebody, you know, you might enjoy having uh, healthy carrot juice instead of that second shot of liquor, you know, just just suggesting you might try and, you know, just kind of make available choices that are in some sense beneficial. Uh, I think that they work best, these nudges work best 
when they urge a direction that's already kind of favored and already kind of there's a tendency to go that way already. So you're going with the flow and just trying to encourage going further in the direction that the system is already going. And I think that the microbial system is actually, or microbial evolution is far more oriented toward causing symbiosis or, or health than it is causing disease, even though our attention has been focused in the other. So that with enough insight, I think that the, the likelihood is, because of our uh, attention deficit toward the symbiotic aspect, I think that we would probably learn ways to nudge it even more. So if 0.0001% of microbial evolution now goes in the direction we don't like, I would like to think that with the right nudge, perhaps we could push that back another decimal place. I think that the idea of nudging it into directions that it already seems to favor is a possibility, but, you know, this idea that knowledge is a double-edged sword, okay, I don't dispute that, but like I said, killing people is a solved problem. Sure, why don't we just, we could just use nuclear weapons. We don't need to... (laughs) I'm not going to break my head on it personally. I could imagine... Whatever, if you want to write a science fiction, horror, bio-war pornography, go ahead. We're starting to get to the end of our time together. I have a fundamental question, which may be a very stupid question, but if a virus is a fragment of information, it's not complete without some other living form, what is the drive behind that wanting to reproduce itself endlessly? Why... Why does everything want to reproduce and dominate? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things in your question. One is this idea of interdependence, which can be stated as different in a virus. But interdependence is kind of um, a more general property than just that of viruses. You know, what's, what's behind it may be a philosophical question of, of uh, what is an individual. You know, if you have kind of compartmentalized individuals and, and um, this question of, uh, you know, what, what do you define as life? So if life is a unit of reproduction, goes, you know, I think uh, a great biologist put it, if life is the unit of reproduction, then is one rabbit alive? Then this question of what does it mean in a system when something, a drive to reproduce? And I'm not sure if that implies some kind of teleology, some kind of like a drive coming from above or the intrinsic drive. I mean, there. These are kind of philosophical issues that Bergson comes to mind. Um, but from a reproductive point, I mean, it can, it can work very logically that, that just if you have um, information that causes itself to reproduce, then 
you know, there'll be more of it in the in the environment, and that's kind of the the Darwinian basis, and that's part of what life is doing to evolve. The other part that's kind of un not directly Darwinian has to do with horizontal evolution or generation of diversity and kind of the combinatoric aspect of uh, groupings of information inside individuals, which is kind of the complementary part of information metabolism. So, and, and you could manifest them as, as linear or, or vertical and horizontal evolution. I'm saying some things that relate to what you're saying, but I'm not sure if they're helping. I have to say that many of the people that I speak with conjure up a picture that we are at the end of times. And talking with you, I get more of the picture that we're at the beginning of times. We're just at the beginning of a possible real expansion of of not just knowledge, but of life itself. And, and perhaps this world that you're studying, the micro world, is, is a plane where life is playing. It's a play space for information to see what can go on in time and what cannot. Are there any final remarks you'd like to make as we wrap this up, David Taylor? Just the question. I think that it's a good question, and and I, I'm interested to see where it goes in in my own life and in, and in others. And, and the question is, it becomes, because is microbial biodiversity increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? And if microbial biodiversity is, in fact, the majority of biodiversity on the planet, is biodiversity, in fact, increasing, decreasing, staying the same? Or or is the distribution of biodiversity perhaps changing, but the overall space volume of it? I like this universe metaphor. My intuition is the universal biological information is growing, is increasing at, in a way analogous to the physical universe, and that the place, our place in it, may be relatively decreasing. We've been speaking with microbiologist, researcher, and thinker, as you can see, Dr. David Thaler, and he works with the Department of Biozentrum in Basel, Switzerland, but he's also a guest scientist with the Rockefeller University in New York. His latest paper, we've been talking about it, Is Global Microbial Biodiversity Increasing, Decreasing, or Staying the Same? You can find links to this and other papers that we've been talking about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. David, I can't tell you, it's been a great pleasure sharing your work with you. Thank you. Thank you. Covering the world, this is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. For me, David describes three models of thought as sort of a beginning platform to understand the invisible world of living things. We can use the astronomical analog, where there are clusters of life and space. We can investigate the microplane as a kind of information space. But then, too, these life forms change so rapidly, we cannot keep up. David tells us a microbe can evolve about a trillion times faster than humans. Microbiology operates almost on a different plane in time, which makes it difficult, maybe impossible, to capture or even view in our human time. 
There is a lot in that interview with David Toller. We can all profit from listening at least a second time. You can listen to any Radio EcoShock show absolutely free, with no advertising, on the program webpage at ecoshock.org. I post each program a few days after the program plays on radio. Press the play arrow to listen, or download to hear it later on your phone, MP3 player, or computer. I will put more of my notes on this David Toller interview in the show blog posted Wednesday, April 28, 2021. Radio EcoShock is proud to present Solid Science, direct from the authors of the latest papers, books, and presentations. Your participation as listeners really do make these interviews with scientists possible. Thank you for listening, and thank you for caring about this world. Who would control the global climate? I think we've already entered the era of superfires both in Canada, continental US, Australia, and other areas as well. continue up to, you know, that three and a half and some say four and indeed six degrees. The essential thing is this is ultimately, it's not compatible with human existence. That's the raw and the ugly truth of it. And that's why we really do need to do something about it. Most of the world's airports in many respects are at sea level. You find airports everywhere along the coasts of the continents. Countries that can build airports out into the ocean. San Francisco did this. Japan does this. China did it. Honolulu. It's just the number of airports have landed in Sydney where you're just skipping the ocean and then you're on this tarmac. All of those are going to get covered over by even the three to five foot sea level rise because of storm surge. <laughs> 